Today's episode is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn a 5.1% annual percentage yield with a high-yield cash account. And while we can't say for certain that's the highest interest rate out there, we can say that at the time of this recording, that's higher than Robinhood, higher than SoFi, Marcus, Wealthfront, higher rate than Betterment, Capital One, Ally, Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo. I think you get the point here. If you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. Full disclosures and terms and conditions can be found in the podcast description, U.S. members only. This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Matt Russell, and today we are breaking down the legendary DuPont. At Colossus, we admire leaders that are in the trenches with their team members, never above any task, willing to share in the risks. But wow, did the DuPont family set a standard in that category. Whether it was Pierre Samuel DuPont's 1818 death fighting a fire at their powder mill, Alexis DuPont's 1857 death in an explosion at the powder yard, or Lamont DuPont's famous 1884 death in an explosion while he was experimenting with nitroglycerines, the DuPont family pushed the limits. In the 1900s, the company evolved away from their roots in gunpowder and dynamite, and it's hard to find an industry that they haven't touched since then. To break down DuPont, I'm joined by Seth Goldstein from Morningstar. Seth covers what separates commodity chemicals from specialty chemicals. We get some quick history and chemistry lessons on what's happening to create these well-known products like nylon and Tyvek, and why after all of these years as a behemoth in the industry, DuPont has unbundled into several independent companies. I really enjoyed this one. Here's our breakdown of Delaware's finest, DuPont. All right, Seth, welcome to Business Breakdowns. Thanks for having me, Matt. So we're covering DuPont today. And in thinking about where we should start the conversation off, I actually thought it would be good to start looking backward at the DuPont legacy and frame the conversation that way. So maybe you can start us off with a quick rundown of some of the key products that define DuPont's history and where listeners might be familiar with DuPont products in their everyday life. So DuPont is actually uh, 220 years old, and it started as a gunpowder maker and then eventually moved into explosives. So for the first 100 or so years of DuPont as a company, it basically focused on the explosives market and did very well there. But then in the early 1900s, DuPont started to look for other uses for some of its products, some of its cellulose products that 
We're selling well in the explosives market, but it's always good to do research and development on other products. So eventually DuPont is one of the first inventors of nylons, which still today is used widely, whether it's in clothing or a more durable version of nylon that's used in things like automobiles and transportation. You know, this is a product that DuPont first invented in the first half of the 1900s and has grown from there. Then as DuPont is continuing to look at these sort of strong synthetic fibers, the company continues to develop more and more products around these. So something like Teflon that was widely used in things like nonstick coating to make pots and pans be able to be easily washed and reused. That was a big innovation in consumer products. DuPont also made products like Kevlar, which were able to stop bullets to improve safety for law enforcement and military. They were able to make fibers that would make firefighting suits. So the product Nomex, for example, allows a firefighter to run to a burning building and suffer minimal injuries. And then something like Tyvek. This is a product where people may not be as familiar with it, but if you're driving around town and you see a building under construction, whether it's a house or a business, you're likely to see Tyvek is the house wrap that essentially keeps that building safe from air entering and safe from water entering when it rains. So this is an example of DuPont innovating its products throughout the years and continuing to make well, what has become household product names within the chemicals industry. It was interesting during the research, I read a data point that they had 75% market share of the gunpowder market in 1905. And I think Standard Oil is often the poster child for the antitrust movement and the breakup of some of these large businesses. But DuPont was another one that was right in the crosshairs. And what came of that was an incredibly diversified business that pretty much touches every industry in some way, shape, or form. You mentioned some of the clothes that we wear on our homes today with the semiconductor business. So that's some theme that has been really interesting to follow and something I didn't appreciate coming into this before having done any prep. I think it's a good opportunity to then step back and ask the question, okay, this is defined as a specialty chemicals business. What does that actually mean? What is the process that's going on here to develop these products? And maybe you can walk us through a little bit of the science that goes into actually creating a Kevlar or a nylon or a Tyvek to give us a sense of what that actually looks like and what DuPont's doing. So the way I define a specialty chemicals business is a company that takes commodity chemicals and turns them into something that's either patent protected or differentiated. So for DuPont, they're essentially combining a bunch of commodity chemicals and turning them into their specialty products that are developed in many cases for specific customer end markets. So something like the chemicals that are used to make semiconductors, DuPont is able to make the best versions of these chemicals that their competitors just cannot keep up. And this is a case where patents don't even really matter because the industry moves so fast that by the time patents expire, the products really don't have a useful life anyways. But DuPont can continue to turn the raw materials and the commodity chemicals into these specialized chemicals. Brings up a good point. I wanted to ask about the specialty chemicals themselves. You mentioned that they're sourcing these and converting them into a, an end-use product, but maybe we could step back and describe where they actually are sourcing these commodity chemicals from. 
what those look like. I'm assuming there's some form of a hydrocarbon byproduct, something along those lines. Where are they actually getting these commodities from? And can you give us an example of a name that we might be familiar with? A lot of what DuPont is sourcing is going to be from a company like Dow Chemical. So when Dow and DuPont merged and split up in 2018, 2019, DuPont got the specialty businesses, Dow got the commodity businesses. But when you look at the separation, there was a lot of supply agreements from Dow to supply DuPont with the raw materials. So a company like Dow is going to take hydrocarbons, so something like oil or natural gas-based products, and turn that into the commodity chemicals. A most common one is something like an ethylene, for example, that is sort of the building block that is then transformed eventually into the consumer products or the chemicals and plastics that we can readily identify. That's an example of how something would move from, say, an oil or a natural gas to where DuPont gets it, and then DuPont refines it from there. I think there's this interesting theme with hydrocarbons where there's this assumption that something gets drilled into the ground and out comes black oil, and that's all converted into, I think, gasoline is what's most commonly thought of. But in reality, what comes out is a liquid, which is taken into a refinery that is burned. And you can think about it similar to cooking. If you have something that's very liquidy and you put it in a saucepan, you eventually get something a little bit thicker. Well, the rest of that liquid is going up. And if you set it up in the right way, you can even see that turn into condensation and turn into something else. I'm exaggerating a bit here with the refinery process, but there's a lot of those bribe products that can be used in other industries. And that's what DuPont has done effectively for many, many years. You hit on a big major change for this organization. And I think a defining moment in December of 2015, Dow and DuPont announced a merger of equals. Maybe you could talk about the thought process that went into that decision, because what was unique was there was automatically plans to split up those businesses into three different businesses. And I think since then, there's been multiple divestitures and different types of sales. But Walk us through the strategic thought process behind what sounds like input supplier and a company like DuPont coming together in 2015. So at that time, Dow and DuPont were similar, but slightly different within the chemicals industry. So DuPont was a little more focused on specialty, but also had an agriculture business and also had a commodity chemicals business. Conversely, Dow was more focused on commodity chemicals, but also had a little specialty business and also had a little agriculture business. So the plan was for these companies to come together and to create three more focused businesses, which I think was a great idea for investors because that gives investors more of a choice on what themes do you want to invest in versus just a large diversified chemicals company that at best, you are going to get a GDP-like growth every year just due to the wide array of end markets that they serve. So down DuPont merge, and then from there, they create Corteva, which is the agriculture business. That's a pure play seeds and crop chemicals business. Dow took the commodity chemicals businesses, and then DuPont was four specialty chemicals businesses. From there, DuPont first spun off their nutrition and bioscience business in a deal to Air National Flavors and Fragrances that made IFF the largest ingredients business in the world right now. And then they have a second transaction to spin off their engineered materials business to Celanese, the majority of their engineered materials business. So this is largely their transportation-focused 
what they called their mobility and materials portfolio. But essentially, this is the strong plastic polymers that go in the transportation, things like cars, many different parts for vehicles. This is going to sell these, which will create the largest polymers company in the world. From there, DuPont will be left with their water and protection business, which has the traditional legacy products like your Kevlar, your Nomex, your Tyvek. And then they'll have this electronic materials business that will be the majority of profits that's selling components into semiconductors and electronic, think of like 5G enabled devices, those type of materials. So it'll be a much more focused business than it was back in 2015 before the merger with Dow. Yeah, you brought up a good point there in terms of giving investors the opportunity to make pure play investments based on these different strategies. A common theme that we often talk about on our podcast is bundling and unbundling. And I think it actually plays true in the investment industry as well. It's just in the form of conglomerates versus pure plays. And you see it in industries all the time where those multiples can vary and there's investor preference for one or the other. For here, it's particularly interesting given the different end markets, the different focus, I do want to step back one second and make sure we fully understand the difference between a specialty chemicals business and a commodity chemicals business. Am I right to assume the commodity chemicals business is basically anything that comes out of a hydrocarbon refinery, but can be basically made by anyone who touches a hydrocarbon versus the specialty chemicals business is basically requiring another step, another refining process or cracking process, something along those lines? So the specialty chemicals are certainly more refined, but you can have commodity chemicals that have two, three, four, five, six times being refined and mixed and added with other things. The way I'd really define commodity versus specialty is can a competitor make the exact same product? And as a result, could there be essentially a bidding war or market price fluctuations based on typical supply and demand balances versus a specialty chemical is something that's either patent protected or differentiated enough to the point that a company is going to choose a DuPont product over, say, you know, another specialty chemical provider because that DuPont product is the best at what it does and it serves a specialty niche purpose. And so that's really how I define it. Of course, Especially chemicals companies tend to have stronger pricing power. So when we look for evidence of can this company raise prices, for example, when we're in the inflationary environment that we're in today, can DuPont continue to raise prices to recover all of their costs? That's a good indication. But really, when we look at market multiples, Matt, to bring up your point, especially chemicals tend to have a higher multiple. So You'll hear the term specialty products, specialty chemicals thrown out by many different chemicals companies in an attempt to get investors to think of that company as being included in specialty. But I look for more evidence of patents, of differentiated products and of pricing power, higher margins, and how does the business perform through a cycle as evidence of what differentiates specialty from just a commodity, I'll call commodity downstream chemical company. That's a really helpful breakdown. The branding efforts versus the reality are always a good litmus test. The importance of patents is really interesting here. Most commodity businesses that I think of, you would never think about having a patent. But here, it obviously seems key to the story. Can you go back in time and maybe point to some of the major products or early first products that had patents attached to them? 
You know, I think nylons for DuPont, I know that's a more general industry term, but that was one of the first categories that had patents where rayon was just the general term for a non-natural fiber, so a synthetic fiber. And that's still the industry term used today. But then DuPont developed nylon, which was more durable had much more unique properties, and that was patented. Eventually, that went off patent. And we've seen even today, many companies around the world make some version of nylon products. And many of them tend to do the same thing, which is why something like nylon for clothing today is more of a commoditized chemical. Really, what we see is just like pharmaceuticals, when patents expire, Competitors move in, they copy the product as close to what the customer needs. In this case, it's likely to be an automotive or a consumer products company that has specifications. It's not a pharmaceutical. But either way, it kind of works the exact same way where competitors move in, prices fall, and today's specialty chemical is tomorrow's commodity chemical. And I know there's a strong history of R&D at DuPont based on the amount of products that have been released. How much does that ring true today? Are there still new products being developed, new products being put on patent and any success stories maybe in the past 20 years that would really highlight that point? DuPont still spends around 4 to 6% of their sales into R&D depending on the business. So they still do put a decent amount and this is in line with the industry average. So your specialty chemicals companies are going to need to put at least what I'll call a mid-single digit percent of revenue, plow it back into R&D as a way to generate new products. Since when the product goes off patent or when a competitor can copy it well enough to where the customer doesn't care, it works for either, then all your premium pricing tends to disappear pretty quickly. So it's essential for a company like DuPont to continue to invest in R&D. A really good example here I point to is Tyvek. Now, Tyvek is off patent right now, but in the last 20 years, that was a premium product that really was able to revolutionize weatherproofing for buildings. And since then, DuPont has done a really good job to expand the end markets. So DuPont takes this strategy with its products where similar to a new tech company of land and expand. And so eventually, Tyvek can be used in many different materials and As a competitor comes in, sure, they might be able to replicate the house wrap, but can they also replicate the specialty tapes, the other specialty fibers that contain Tyvek? And that's going to take a lot more R&D to copy, which allows DuPont to maintain its pricing power even as its original Tyvek patent expires. When was Tyvek actually introduced? I believe Tyvek was introduced in the late 90s. It's amazing. It's hard to drive by a new build, whether it's residential or commercial, and not see it wrapped in Tyvek at some point in the construction cycle. When you touch the material, you understand, okay, there's something synthetic going on here. So it's pretty impressive. You hit on a good framing there in terms of how much they're spending on R&D. It's a good opportunity to transition to the economic model here to understand how it works. I think you mentioned specialty chemicals in theory should be able to warrant premium pricing, therefore pass on some of that commodity inflation when it comes. What does the economic profile of this business look like? And maybe you can start at the top in terms of how much pricing power they typically operate with, what sales can correlate to, I think about in terms of the price volume, is volume fairly correlated to GDP, is pricing showing a steady increase? 
And then walk us down through the margins and key inputs into that. I'll just touch on the current businesses and assuming all the M&A goes through what the business will look like at the end of 2022. And we'll have these two businesses, the water and protection business, which is focused on the legacy construction builds like a Tyvek. You also have Kevlar and Nomex that tend to grow more with GDP. And then you have this water business where DuPont is one of the leaders in water filtration products. This business is going to grow should see a mid to high single digit rate. And a lot of that is due to rising freshwater costs, creating the need for businesses to recycle water and use water more efficiently. And what this means is that businesses will have to install water recycling operations throughout their plants. And in order to recycle the water, you have to treat it with a chemical. Or if you're going to start with seawater, for example, in a manufacturing operation, you need to remove a lot of the salt and other impurities. And so that requires a pretty sophisticated level of desalinization. As this secular trend occurs throughout the world, this is going to lead to an expanded market for these water treatment products. And we see a sustained mid to high single digit growth rate. For DuPont, as the market leader, this gives them the pricing power to essentially pass along inflation. So when you combine just, say, a general inflation assumption with an expanding volume, they should be able to see top-line growth anywhere from you know high single digit to low double-digit on an annualized basis over the next five years. Then when you look at the electronic materials business, here's another example where we have a secular growing end market, which is there's going to be need for more semiconductors in the world. And we have this 5G-enabled devices, which is creating more complexity in electronic materials. So as more appliances and other devices are intertwined and become sort of smart appliances, smart devices, they're going to need more electronic materials. And for DuPont, this should see a volume growth expand. Here we see about a mid-single-digit volume growth. And as DuPont's the leader in these electronic materials, we should see them be able to pass along inflation. So that should lead to a mid to high single digit top line revenue growth. And for margins, this should lead to fairly stable profit margins over time because DuPont is generally just passing along cost inflation. Maybe they can run their plants a little more efficiently over time and expand margins that way, but generally a price to maintain their profits. For DuPont, this should lead to an adjusted EBITDA, which is how they report. This should lead to adjusted EBITDA margins for the electronic materials business in the low 30% or so, and for the water and protection business in the mid 20%. So company-wide should be in the high 20% range. What is the revenue mix between those two segments today? Today, it would be about 50% electronic materials, 40 to 45% water and protection. Then they have a few businesses that they may divest in the future that are sort of remaining from the mobility of materials that could be reorged or could be divested eventually that make up the last bit of revenue. Other income, other bets category that won't be around. Those margins, EBITDA margins in the high 20s, low 30% range seems like a very attractive business. How does that compare to the history of the business? We look back 10, 20 years ago, were they earning similar margins on the end markets? When we look back longer and they still had those commodity chemical businesses, those are much lower margins. Going back to the commodity versus specialty, looking at profit margins is another indication of 
Are these businesses truly specialized or do they have more commodity-like margins? Going back when DuPont still had more commodity businesses, margins were lower. So now they're going to have a higher margin profile going forward, largely due to the Dow DuPont merger and then subsequent separations. Just curious, how much lower are they single digit or in the teens? Is it that drastic of a difference between specialty and commodity? It can be because commodities are very cyclical. What what we tend to see is at the high point of the cycle, you can have very similar margins between commodity and specialty. But at the low point of the cycle, you could expect to see commodity chemical margins in the high single digit range. So there's a wide variability there depending on what point of the cycle that we're in. And that can lead to much more volatile results for a pure commodity company versus a specialty chemical company where we'll still see some volatility as we will with any business, but it'll just be a lot less volatile and more range bound. And you mentioned that when they signed the original merger agreement, there were supply agreements attached to that. Are those in effect for an extended period of time, I would imagine in periods like this where you could see a shortage of commodities or incredibly high commodity prices relative to what we've seen over the past couple of years, that that would be advantageous to them. But maybe you can walk us through what those look like and how much of an advantage they might represent for DuPont today. That really is much about pricing. It's more just about security of supply. So when DuPont buys chemicals from Dow, it's at market prices. And it's always bought at market prices. So it doesn't help them. It doesn't hurt them. But they know that they can get whatever volumes that were contracted that Dow will supply them. So in the case of a shortage of one chemical, DuPont would be less likely to be impacted than their competitors who don't have that security of supply. And thinking about the end market and the customer base, I'm assuming their customer base is largely businesses in some way, shape, or form. Even if I'm buying Tyvek, they're probably selling to Home Depot and Lowe's. What do those agreements look like? How are the products sold? Are these done in major batches for the semiconductor industry, or is it fairly steady? You know, I'm just curious how much seasonality and how lumpy the sales can be for this type of business. It tends to move with the end market, but then they tend to be a little earlier because they're more upstream in the supply chain. For example, if you're selling into the consumer electronics market, the fourth quarter tends to see peak sales for that market. So for DuPont, they might see larger sales in the third quarter as companies who are making consumer electronics are stocking their raw materials. That tends to be a little bit of cyclicality, but they don't tend to have a ton of cyclicality. It's not something where sales completely drop off in any quarter of the year. It tends to be a little more flat relative to industries with peak cyclicality, let's say. But when you look at DuPont's customers, they pretty much sell to everyone, whether it's small businesses, they do sell certainly to many large businesses, but they don't have a preferred type of customer. They're willing to sell to anyone who wants their products. Are they producing on a per order basis? How tight is it to the end market demand requesting versus trying to speculate what that end market demand is going to look like? And I'm mostly curious because we're entering into what feels like is at least somewhat of a demand slowdown relative to last year. And I'd be curious if they're ever in positions where they're loaded up on inventory after having produced a lot, but the end market demand isn't there. How do they control for 
that type of supply balance versus demand? I think that DuPont, while they manufacture most of their own products, they do outsource some to contract manufacturers. And that's really where the swing is going to come in. They know that they can fill their own plants and there will be steady demand. But if demand is a little higher, then maybe they outsource a little more products being manufactured. If demand is a little lower, maybe they cut back on some of that. That allows them a little more room to scale up and down quicker without having the outsize, say, hit to their profits due to lower manufacturing utilization during a slowdown. And are there manufacturing plants today all located in the U.S.? What does that footprint look like? Most of their assets are outside of the U.S. these days. Through the M&A and divestitures, they're really more heavily focused in Asia, which makes a lot of sense when you think about the end markets, because Asia is where a lot of the electronics are made in the world, or a lot of the components like semiconductors are made in the world. So that's really where DuPont's largest market is today. In periods of time where maybe they're at max utilization at their facilities, they're just able to hire contractors and outsource, basically licensing their patent for a contractor for a temporary period of time in order to produce those products? Yes. And they do expand as well. So over time, they will expand their plants, but obviously that's not an immediate boost to volumes. It takes you know a year or two to expand a plant, get a new line up and running and really be able to increase volume. So as a temporary fix, they will outsource some of that to contract manufacturers. Going back to the refining process of the commodity chemicals and specialty chemicals, and from there, is it taking place in the same manufacturing facility that they're ultimately going to produce what's ever going to an end customer? Or are they doing some of that with a separate refiner before it gets shipped off to Asia? Some of these more specialized products can be very complex and have 15 or 16 different steps from when you take, say, a commodity chemical like ethylene and turn it into the ultimate end market product. So they might do a few steps at a plant and then ship it to a different plant and do a few more steps there, or maybe ship it off to a contract manufacturer, do a step or two, come bring it back. These are really moving through multiple locations before they reach an end market state as a product, before then it's sold to the consumer. My question was sparked because of the challenges of transportation of some of those pure commodity chemicals and what they look like. So I can understand there's multiple steps, maybe multiple processing plants involved before it gets to an end user, which is fascinating to think about. When you think about the cash flow cycle of this business, Is it fairly steady? Are they spending a lot on CapEx in order to build out more manufacturing facilities? It does seem like the business strategy here has been shrink or optimize in some sense to put assets within boxes that represent standalone categories. But I'm curious in terms of how much investment is going back into things like the processing facilities that sit outside of R&D. When you look at CapEx as a percent of sales, it tends to be 7 to 8% a year that they put back into growing and investing their plant capacity. Now, much of that is just maintenance CapEx that they have to do as a way to just maintain the current facilities since these are ultimately manufacturing plants that you have to spend a certain amount of money just to keep the lights on and the plant running, so to speak. But then some of that is going to be into growth CapEx. But I believe the majority of CapEx goes to maintenance with then call it 
two to 3% of sales goes towards growth capex to eventually expand their capacity. A lot of this now talk about capital allocation, which comes down to management teams, decision makers. Maybe we can go back in time. Today, it does not look like there are DuPonts in charge of the business. When did that change? And maybe talk a little bit about the history of the DuPont family when they've transitioned away and maybe some of the key leadership changes and who's holding the torch today. So the DuPont family had a controlling interest until about 1970 or so. And at that point, they merged with Christiana Securities and the DuPont family essentially no longer had a controlling interest in the business. From there, what we've seen, interestingly enough, is DuPont has had multiple CEOs over about the last, call it 50 years or so, with most CEOs only serving a tenure of averaging five to six years or so. So there's been quite a bit of management turnover at the top. We've also seen a lot of CEOs go through restructuring of the business, go through cost-cutting initiatives. And we see that DuPont in that way tends to mirror many large corporations of the time where there's constant restructuring, constant cost-cutting, constant development into new products. And this really makes sense at the time because going back to specialty chemicals today are tomorrow's commodities. This was happening with many of DuPont's products at the time. So they had to figure out where can we invest? Where are we creating the new differentiated products? And we saw over time, business has shifted focus from making things like plastics and fibers to then focusing on things like agriculture components. They even bought an oil company in 1981 and spun it off uh, Conoco in the late 90s. And the business end market has really shifted over time as new managers have put their stamp on the business. Yeah, there was this fascinating time lapse of the largest US companies. And it starts in 1995. And it's interesting, you see Microsoft listed as number 10 and DuPont listed as number 11, both with about $40 billion market caps. And it moves fairly quickly where DuPont drops down off the list, not because they are necessarily shrinking, but the market caps of these other businesses are just expanding so much. And unfortunately, they they never get back into the list, even with that $120 billion merger. But yeah, it was really interesting to see at that place in time, how large they were and dating back into the 50s, it looked similar. That description of the natural cycles of these patents, how they roll off, the need to constantly be investing in research and development and actually getting products out there that can meet the needs and pick up where others are dropping off is interesting. So when you think about it on a forward-looking basis, how do they move against that trend or that reality of the business? And what do you think of as the bull case here, in addition to being attached to two growing end markets in water and the semiconductor side of things, what else are they doing that results in this business being put back on the pedestal? The bull case is that they create another, for lack of a better term, blockbuster products in the chemicals industry that... They are number one. No one can come close to competing with their products, and they're able to gain market share over time as these end markets grow. That's the bull case. In the base case, you could assume that DuPont just maintains their market share. They are able to successfully, let's call it tread water, where today's specialty products become commoditized. They're able to develop the new latest and greatest products to replace that share, and ultimately their market share doesn't change at all. And then in a bear case, of course, you would have to assume that 
they're unsuccessful with developing new products and their current specialty products become commoditized and that impairs pricing power and margins over time. And who are they competing against in terms of these product developments? You've referenced market share a few times there. Is there an easy way to measure what percentage of the market they represent today and who the competitors are in terms of that overall pie? For the electronics business, DuPont says it's about a $40 billion market in total that they have. And that includes the two acquisitions, the one they made earlier this year, and then Rogers, which will close later this year. They say it's about a $40 billion market. They should have about $8 billion in sales or so. So about a 20% market share. Largely in that business, they're going to be competing against many conglomerate chemicals companies in Asia and Europe. That's going to be some of their major competitors. They're also going to see some competition from specialty chemicals companies in the U.S. Celanese was a competitor, but they're divesting a lot of the mobility materials portfolio to Celanese, who they used to compete with there. Eastman is a competitor. So other specialty chemicals companies that are more focused as well would be their competitors. And when we look at the other part of the business, we see a very similar market share. We see roughly a $40 billion market, I'd estimate, with DuPont having about a 20-25% market share. Generally, let's call it an $80 billion addressable market for their products, with DuPont having about a 20% share. Not quite the 75% market share that they had in the powder market, but still very respectable. You referenced before the difference in valuations that a commodity chemicals business might see versus a specialty chemicals business. How do you think about valuing this type of business? And maybe for comparison's sake, using commodity chemicals business as a parallel would be useful as well. How do you go about approaching that? What type of metrics are you using and framework behind valuation? When I'm looking at commodity versus specialty, it's really going to show up in one, my explicit financial model. So how fast I'm growing revenue? What are my margin assumptions? What does a mid-cycle profit margin look like for these businesses? For commodity chemicals, it's going to be a lower profit margin might be something in the mid-teens on a profit margin standpoint versus DuPont's going to be in the mid to high 20s. In my terminal value, I'm likely to assume a higher terminal value growth rate for a specialty chemicals company due to the pricing power that they have. A commodity chemicals company might get something like global GDP type of growth rate that I'm assuming after my five or 10 year explicit forecast. But for DuPont, I might give them an extra percent or two just because they have that strong pricing power that allows them to grow terminal cash flows at a higher rate. In terms of actual numbers themselves, I kind of think of a GDP type growth business being valued somewhere around 15 times earnings. If you want to flip that to an EBITDA EBITDA basis, oftentimes I think the most commonly referenced metrics are in the eight times range. Is there a ballpark estimate that the market uses or frame of reference for what a specialty chemicals business would be valued at? Typically, in specialty chemicals, if we use EVD, you could see something like the low to mid-teens. So call it like a 12 to 15, depending on how specialized the products are over time. Obviously, at different points of the cycle, they could have a much higher or lower multiple. 12 to 15 times is nice. That's uh, special to me. It's a good opportunity to transition to the risks. I think you referenced what could be the bear case here. Looking back over time, one of the things that has stood out is some of the 
regulatory fines that they've been hit with. So maybe you can go into the past and talk about that. I think it's represented some issues and caused some issues with divestitures, but some timeline over regulatory fines, what those were related to, and how much they could be a lingering issue for DuPont in the future. DuPont, like any chemicals company, faces risks largely related to environmental liabilities. So think of, you know, chemical runoff in the water near their plants or in the air, emissions coming from the plant. And so this is really an added risk that faces all chemicals companies, but DuPont has certainly been affected by this perhaps more than other companies, largely due to the PFAS product of chemicals. So this is the chemical that was used to make Teflon. 3M also makes a version of PFAS that's used largely in firefighting foams and has also faced issues related to PFAS runoff in the water. This can cause a wide range of health problems. And in fact, the EPA is just about to come out with regulations on how much PFAS can be in the water and air next year, I believe. So this will set an official standard. And at that point, Once the EPA has regulated the chemical in the water, then they can use their Superfund liability program to essentially clean it up themselves and then figure out who's responsible and make them pay. Looking at PFAS, we've started to see lawsuits and liabilities about 20 years ago or so. There started to be issues first coming up. In the middle part of last decade, DuPont had settled a case with one of their West Virginia plants, and I believe they paid about seven to $800 million to both in cleanup and in litigation fees. And when we think PFAS will be about a $40 billion industry-wide issue for all participants, about $10 billion in cleanup, about $30 billion in lawsuits, and that's looking at comparable Superfund sites and the number of what we think will be future PFAS Superfund sites, basically areas that need a lot of cleanup to remove the chemicals from the water and the land. But then when you have one of those areas, there tends to be a lot of lawsuits that follow up after the cleanup because people whose health is affected or who have lost family members want to get some sort of remediation from that. We estimate based on comparable lawsuits, so something like asbestos, for example, that there's going to be about $30 billion of lawsuits then for the industry to pay out going forward. DuPont in its current form won't face most of this. We estimate that DuPont, Camors, and Corteva, which we'll refer to as historical DuPont, they'll get about $6.5 billion of that. And that's based on where their historical plants were and what products they sold. While DuPont does face a large risk from PFAS, one of the good things for them is they never actually sold the chemical to anyone else. This is where they're different from a company like 3M who sold PFAS to other companies. DuPont just kept it all to basically make Teflon and other type of products for themselves, which I think largely limits their liabilities to areas around their former manufacturing sites. So that's where I see perhaps a lower liability for them, about $6.5 billion. And then when you look at the liability sharing agreement among DuPont, Camores, and Corteva, the way it's going to shake out is Camores will take the majority of that, about $4.5 billion. And then DuPont and Corteva will split the remaining $2 billion based on their liability sharing agreement. There's a lot of contractual provisions that have been well thought out by these three companies. So for DuPont, I see about $1.4 billion, Corteva $0.6 billion. And on top of whatever fine they'll have to pay, has this 
ongoing issue or focus from regulators, environmental agencies manifested in other ways like higher insurance costs? Are they carrying other liabilities with them? Anything else that impacts them going forward from not only what has happened, but the risk of something like this being uncovered in the future? Outside of PFAS, it's just going to be your general chemicals company's risk that something goes wrong at a plant or the plant wasn't being managed from an environmental impact standpoint, wasn't being managed well, and there's something gets in the water or the air and then future fines come back. We've seen this across the chemicals industry. So outside of PFAS, it's really nothing company specific, just that risk always exists for chemicals companies. But certainly they have this PFAS issue that I think is only likely to grow over time as regulations are in place. And then that gives the government the ability to investigate the sites and take action. And that gives plaintiffs more ground to stand on from a lawsuit standpoint. You mentioned some of the divested businesses or spun off businesses. As a DuPont shareholder today, do you have any remaining interest in the other entities such as Comores, or is it 100% spun off as a standalone company? These are 100% spinoff. So DuPont has generally spun businesses off in a tax-free, efficient manner where the shareholders just get shares of the new company along with their DuPont shares, or they have the option to elect to trade in their DuPont shares for shares of the new company. And at that point, DuPont has no interest in any remaining shareholders either exchange their DuPont shares and no longer owns DuPont or owns both shares in both businesses. But at that point, it's just like owning any two stocks and it has nothing to do with DuPont. It was a really interesting detail about that original Dow-DuPont merger, which was a merger of equals, which therefore allowed them to spin off these businesses in a tax-free manner, which very interesting and rare circumstances, but always very creative ways behind the financial analysts within these companies and those that are advising these companies. So never underestimate what will come out of that. This was an excellent breakdown, Seth. I think we hit on pretty much everything that I can think of as it relates to the DuPont story. The way we like to end is with lessons or takeaways that you've had from analyzing a business and something that you can pass on to investors or operators. So when you think of DuPont and you think about your experience looking at this company's What do you think are some of the key lessons that you would share with others when it relates to DuPont? The key takeaway is when you look at a specialty chemicals business, you have to look for indications of will they continue to be a specialty business or will they likely become commoditized over time? And so looking at how do they perform in inflationary environments, how they perform during recessions, What percent of R&D are they spending, investing, or will they take the M&A strategy and essentially try to outsource their R&D by continuing to buy companies? The former indicates a really high quality business, but a company that continues to just say buy its way into new products, then you tend to risk overpaying and ultimately value destructive activities from management. I'd say when you're looking at a company like DuPont, it's important to understand what is the potential 
for the next 10 years to look like the past 10 years and for them to be able to maintain that specialty premium pricing. And that really fits in with our economic moat framework. And we award DuPont a narrow moat because we think that they will be able to maintain their pricing power for the next 10 years. Very interesting. No, I think there's a great point there about branding and it's easy to just take an industry that might define themselves in a certain way, in this case, specialty and slap a multiple that would reward them for actually acting like that. But it's not always the case. And sometimes it's just branding. It's just words. It's not followed through in actions or in evidence. So love it. Well, thank you very much, Seth. This has been excellent. Thanks for having me, Matt. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 